Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. It's a tense Monday across China with police forces tightening security after this weekend's unprecedented COVID lockdown protests. Large demonstrations taking place this weekend in cities across China, including Beijing and financial hub Shanghai. Thousands of angry citizens demanding an end to restrictive zero COVID policies. Some even calling for the country's leader, Xi Jinping, to resign. All this as Chinese COVID cases rose to fresh records once again today, raising questions over how Beijing can begin easing health restrictions anytime soon. And fears over China's instability remains a dominant concern for global investors. U.S. stocks on track for a lower open after last week's gains. Europe pulling back, too. And oil, take a look, also falling sharply on Chinese demand concerns, with both Brent and U.S. crude off by more than 2 percent there, 2.5 percent. U.S. oil prices currently trading at levels not seen since last December. And later in the show, I'll be joined by Michael Hearson. He is a former U.S. Treasury chief representative to China. We're going to talk to him about his perspective on the economic impact of these major developments. We begin today's show in China, where the leadership in Beijing is facing unprecedented dissent over its strict zero COVID policy. Take a look at this video. This was Shanghai on Saturday, where there were violent clashes between protesters and police. Several arrests were made before the crowds dispersed at dawn. And CNN's Ivan Watson is with us now in Hong Kong, where protests have also been taking place. So, Ivan, bring us up to speed. I mean, what happens now? Are more protests expected? Yeah, we really just don't know. And this is a remarkable phenomenon. CNN has been able to verify 16 separate protests in at least 11 different cities in mainland China over the course of the weekend, nine of these taking place at university campuses. And then we have reports that we haven't been able to verify of many more of these. And what is so unusual is that it's kind of nationwide and it's uh, focused on one particular issue. In the past, we've seen protests uh, that are very localized uh, that can erupt. But here there is just a general grievance uh, that the uh, in some cases, indignities of the zero COVID pro- uh, policy, the economic hardships, the, the psychological hardships are just simply too much now, uh, three years into the COVID pandemic, something that no other country in the world is really doing anymore. Uh, we have also seen uh, some of the symbolism and the protests spread here to Hong Kong, which is this special autonomous region of China, a small uh two small gatherings that took place where I saw protesters. This was just two hours ago. I was at one of these uh, holding up white pieces of paper in solidarity with demonstrators in Shanghai who have taken the same tack. The organizers here say that they were holding this vigil for the victims of China's zero COVID policy. All of this triggered by a deadly fire in the western city of Urumqi uh, last Thursday, where at least 10 people died. 
And the narrative that has kind of spread across the heavily censored Chinese Internet is that uh, they were not rescued in part because COVID restrictions may have created obstacles uh, to that rescue effort, which is something that Chinese officials have so far denied. In fact, Chinese officials have gone a step further. The spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry was asked about these nationwide protests over the weekend, and he seemed to deny they even happened. Take a listen. What you mentioned does not reflect what actually happened. China has been following the dynamic zero-COVID policy and has been making adjustments based on realities on the ground. Rahel, there's one young man that I spoke with at this protest in, in Hong Kong from Shanghai who would probably argue with that Chinese official. Uh, he described himself as a victim of the COVID policy. Take a listen. I am a victim. I cannot go home for many years, like two to three years, right? My parents were locked down for three months. And even relatives of my good friends, they suicide because of the lockdowns, right? And I know people die because of it, because, because of the side effects of this policy, right? Um, I think everyone who has a sane mind should say something or do something to stop this unreasonable social measure. Now, uh, there are some signs that some uh, municipal governments, at least, are starting to make some changes. The Beijing government announced on Sunday that it was going to prohibit blocking the gates or entrances of buildings as part of COVID lockdown measures. And that seems to be linked, perhaps, to the deadly fire that took place in Urumqi last week that triggered that sparked uh, these protests in the first place. Rahel? Ivan Watson, just really interesting. Good to have you. Thank you. In Hong Kong there. And this weekend's protests taking place amid continuing investor concern over the health of the Chinese economy, which has already been weakened by the ongoing lockdowns. Asian stocks sharply lower today. The Chinese currency also falling against the dollar, reflecting the market's nervousness. Mark Stewart joins me now from New York. Mark, good to have you. So, look, it's not just the broader market, but it's also some tech heavyweights that are taking a turn lower. Walk me through this. Hi, Rahel. Good morning. Well, let's first talk about this broader picture. The protests in China, the policy debate about how to handle COVID and the politics surrounding it are without question seeping into the decision-making minds of investors. Let's look first at the Asian markets and these broader indexes to get an idea as to how things are being digested. If we look at uh, Hong Kong's benchmark, the Hang Seng, it's down by more than one and a half percent. Earlier in the trading day, it was at a decline of around 4%. So it, it did gain a little bit back. The Shanghai Composite down and the Nikkei, which in, is based in Japan, uh, that is down, although slightly. But again, it shows some of these jitters and these concerns uh, about, about how investors are handling this instability for the moment uh, in China. On the topic, though, of tech and manufacturing, that's a big component of business in, in the Far East. There is a lot of concern surrounding Apple this morning. If you look at its pre-market trading, uh, its shares are seeing some declines uh, down by, well, currently down by 2% in this pre-market trading. Uh, this, a lot of it will likely center on concerns about manufacturing. Apple depends on a company known as Foxcom. It is in uh, central China. It is a big, big manufacturer of iPhones. That facility there has seen, uh, has seen pro 
protests. It has seen revolts almost by workers. As we have been reporting, we are, there is concern that the disruptions there could cause shortages during this vital holiday shopping period. And as we know, Rahel, American consumers are definitely into their electronic purchases. <laughs> uh, so that's where we stand. It's just after yeah. 10 o'clock in Asia. We'll see what tomorrow brings. Absolutely. I mean, Dan Ives, an analyst who covers Apple very closely, calling uh, the lockdown policy there just a gut punch to Apple. Uh, Mark, before I let you go, walk me through the impact we're seeing in some commodities like oil. Oil, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, off two and a half percent. What's the feeling uh, there with investors about what's happening in China? Right. Oil is really the commodity to watch if we're talking about commodities. Oil is certainly its value is often determined in nine times out of 10 cases by supply and demand. And right now there is concern because of COVID lockdowns, because there is restriction in the movement of people. Demand for oil in China is going to see an even further slump. This has been an issue in the early months of the year, and there is concern that if these lockdowns continue, this zero COVID policy, that oil prices could detrimentally uh, be impacted. Right now, they're, they're lower because demand right now just isn't so high. Just so many implications, as you pointed out, Mark, and so much to watch. Good to have you. Thank you, Mark Stewart. And let's turn to Ukraine now, where there are signs that Russian forces may be preparing to leave the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The plant, which has been under Russian control since March, has come under persistent shelling, raising fears of a potential nuclear accident. CNN Sam Kiley live with us now on the ground in Zaporizhia with more. So, Sam, walk me through this, because Russia appears to be denying these reports, stating that the plant remains under Russian control. So who's telling the truth here? Uh, nobody, I suspect, uh, in short, Rahel. The uh, Ukrainian uh, head of the atomic agency here has said, uh, although provided very little proof other than suggesting that he'd seen uh, statements made on social media speculating in Russia that Russian troops may withdraw from the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which they captured in March. Uh, and he believed that there were other preparations being made to evacuate the plant of Russian uh, scientists and indeed the military. I have to say that there has been back and forth over the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant for months now, both sides alleging that it's been shelling those, uh, or accusing the other of shelling it, of threatening a nuclear catastrophe. But it's very, very hard to see why the Russians would want to give up that important strategic site. Uh, at its peak, it provides 20% of Ukraine's electrical generating capacity, a capacity that Putin's war has been systematically trying to smash uh, at the moment. Uh, the Kiev is uh, reducing its power usage, attempting to anyway, by 60% because it is uh, so struggling uh, to get power to the critical uh, locations such as hospitals and other locations that it needs to keep under constant supply. Uh, there is also the idea that Zaporizhia nuclear power station is currently a Russian military base. It is used as a fire base to attack villages and cities across the Dnipro River. And if the Russians were to evacuate it, it would provide the Ukrainians not only with, an, with a return to their generating capabilities potentially, but also a bridgehead for 
uh, any future operations, and they really do have their eyes set on driving the Russians out of Crimea, especially, but out of the country entirely. So I think that this should really be seen in the context uh, of psychological warfare, really. Uh, the Russians, of course, uh, who would seldom tell the truth about Zaporizhia nuclear power station, probably can be believed at the moment when they say it's disinformation. Good to have you, Sam Kiley. Appreciate the insight. Live force there in Zaporizhia. To Iran now, where a niece of Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is calling on foreign governments to cut ties with the country amid nationwide protests. Jamana Koreche joins me now with the latest from Istanbul. So, Jamana, I mean, how significant is this type of dissent? Well, uh, Rahel, we have to put this into context. Faride um, Murad Khani, she's a well-known activist, a human rights activist who has been a critic of the regime for a very long time. So this is not surprising, but it's also very brave for anyone to come out against the Iranian regime like she has. Uh, but again, especially if you are in Iran and saying something like that. But her family has opposed the regime for a long time. Her mother, the sister of the supreme leader, cut ties with the family a long time ago. Her father was a well-known uh, opposition figure. And what we understand, Rahel, happened is on Wednesday, she was arrested. According to a human rights organization and according to her brother, she appeared in court on Wednesday. This was something to do with a case back in January. She was arrested, released on bail, went to court on Wednesday, and she was arrested. Now, two days after her arrest, this video surfaced online. It was shared, it appears to have been shared by her brother. It's a seven-minute video in which she slams the Iranian regime as well as the international community and the United Nations, she says, for not doing enough to support, quote, the brave people of Iran. And she called on the free people of the world, as she put it, to push their governments to do more, to cut ties with the uh, Iranian regime, uh, what she described as the murderous child-killing regime. She described sanctions that have been imposed on uh, the Iranian government as laughable, and she was calling for more action, saying now is the time uh, for that action. And she likened her uncle, Khamenei, to Mussolini, Hitler, Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, and uh, a list of others. And she closed that video statement by uh, using the slogan of the protests, clearly showing her support for this ongoing movement with the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom, Rahel. Shimana, good to have that perspective there. So perhaps not surprising, but brave nonetheless, as you pointed out. Bena Karachi there, Life Force in Istanbul. Meanwhile, there has been controversy ahead of the U.S. Iran's match on Tuesday at the World Cup in Qatar. The U.S. soccer team had temporarily removed the emblem from Iran's flag on their social media accounts over the weekend. That was a sign of solidarity with anti-government protesters in the Islamic Republic. While Iranian state media says that the U.S. men's team should be kicked out of the tournament for posting that image. Let's now stay with the World Cup. Another full day of group stage matches. Cameroon fought back from two goals down to finish three 3-all against Serbia. South Korea and Ghana are currently playing as we speak. And world number one Brazil will take on Switzerland shortly, but without an injured Neymar. And Cristiano Ronaldo will be back as Portugal takes on Uruguay later today. So let's get to CNN's Amanda Davis, who has all the action from Doha. Amanda, good to have you. So I want to start with South Korea and Ghana. I guess at this point both are desperate for any uh, goals, any scores. What's the score at this point still? 
Yeah, it's going pretty well for uh, Ghana at this point. They are 2-0 up uh, just at the start of the second half, but South Korea don't seem to be panicking, although they are certainly struggling for shots on target at this point. Uh, That means if things stay as they are, heading into Portugal's game against uh, Uruguay, Ghana will be top of the group. Uh, Some of the emotion, I think it's fair to say, has been taken out of the build-up to Portugal's game, though, after all the controversy, the build-up focused on Cristiano Ronaldo last week because he was making his uh, World Cup debut here in Qatar in the immediate aftermath of that cancelled contract with Manchester United. Uh, He did, though, find the score sheet, you might remember, to become the first man to score goals in five separate World Cups. Uh, Suggestion is, though, given how Uruguay play their football, he might not be quite such an integral part to Felix Sanchez's side uh, this evening. Uh, It was Uruguay um, who have consistently reached the knockout stages in the last three World Cups and they do not concede goals uh, easily. So that's one to watch. Uh, But as you mentioned, Neymar is stealing all the headlines in the build-up to the Brazil match, despite the fact we know he's not going to play. It's all about the emotion, really, of the fact he's not playing and what impact that will have on Brazil's side. Uh, Eagle-eyed viewers might remember 2014 when really Brazil collapsed in the wake of his departure from the squad with a back injury. The suggestion is they're in a much better place now with their attacking strength. Richarlison very much stepping up uh, last week, scoring two goals, gaining four million social media followers in the immediate aftermath of that one. Rodrigo, too, 21-year-old Real Madrid star, uh, who will be looking to make an impact in that one uh, later on. Switzerland, though, earned a draw against Brazil in Russia in 2018, so certainly will be no pushovers for them. And, you know, we cannot mention, uh, cannot leave without mentioning the first game of today. If we thought all the excitement, the action had been done over the weekend with the likes of Morocco's win over Belgium or that brilliant European heavyweight clash between Germany and Spain, uh, Cameroon uh, against Serbia really gave us all the thrills and spills that you would like at a World Cup group stage match. Both sides knew they needed to get something out of it. So much credit needs to go to Cameroon. They were 3-1 down, pulled it back to a draw. So that's uh, the first time they have got something out of a World Cup game since 2002. Well, Amanda, I'm so glad you brought up Cameroon and Serbia because I I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that Cameroon had scored two goals within, I think, just three minutes. So just a great, great way to to finish your hit. Good to have you. It's Amanda Davis at the World Cup. And straight ahead, the clock is ticking for the West to set a price cap on Russian oil. What's the problem? Well, they can't seem to agree on what that cap should actually be. I speak with Luxembourg's finance minister after the break. Welcome back. A clash over capping the price of Russian oil ahead of a critical December deadline. Ukraine's allies in the West are struggling to agree on a price level that would actually hurt Russia's ability to fund the war without also causing a global oil supply shock. The EU is pushing for a cap between $65 and $70 per barrel. But some members, led by Poland, are 
arguing for a lower price, saying that the EU's range wouldn't actually put pressure on the Kremlin. Over the weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky added his voice, saying that the price for Russian oil should be capped between $30 and $40 per barrel. Joining me now is Eureka Bakas. She is the finance minister of Luxembourg. Eureka, good to have you. So it seems to me that the EU members appear to agree on principle, but it is this idea of what level to set the price cap that they just can't seem to agree on. Why is it so controversial, the level? Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. I think, uh, as always in the European Union, we are uh, trying to find a common position. Sometimes this uh, takes longer, but this price cap that was uh, planned also at G7 level is very important. I'm very confident uh, that we will, in the next uh, few days, find a a common uh, agreement on this. Okay. I mean, but do you think that a price cap is the best measure to support Europeans who are dealing with high energy prices. Is that the best way to even do that? Well, I think we are watching now what is happening to uh, to the prices on the international markets. But I think the signal that we are sending continues to be uh, very important also towards Russia. So I think this will be another important uh, message uh, to Russia. Mm. But walk me through some of the other measures perhaps some EU members could take to provide more support. You say uh, support for energy efficiency investments, allowances for disadvantaged households that are better targeted. I mean, might that uh, be a better alternative to providing some support for Europeans who are struggling under the weight of high energy costs? Yes, I think we have been very actively doing this over the past uh, couple of uh, months. You have to remember that economic fundamentals are very different from member country uh, to member country. In Luxembourg, for example, we are also experiencing, as in other countries, Uh, slower growth, higher inflation. So what we have uh, done is really put together quite an important investment to help uh, the vulnerable households uh, deal with the current situation and uh, also help the companies getting through uh, very difficult uh, times, especially those most affected uh, by high energy prices. Very difficult indeed. And to that point, Eureka, I wanted to ask, you say that Luxembourg's direct exposure to Russia has been limited, has been low, but you talk about the supply chain impact, COVID disruptions due to China. I mean, what are your thoughts when you see these pictures and these videos coming out of China over the weekend of the type of dissent we're seeing because of the zero COVID policy? Well, we have seen that supply chain has really been a problem since before Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, already at the end uh, of coming out of the pandemic, we saw uh, the uh, the impact that uh, supply chain was having and the impact on uh, on inflation. So we are watching very carefully what is happening uh, right now in China, of course. Uh, but as I said, supply chain has uh, problems have been impacting inflation already before uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Hmm. Obviously, the government in China, a very different type of government. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, what type of message might you have for uh, leaders in China about the, um, the the type of policy that we're seeing with zero COVID and clearly the exhaustion and the fatigue that people are now experiencing after three years of this type of policy? I think in all of our countries, we have gone uh, through lockdowns and I can understand the difficult situation uh, that uh, people are facing uh, there. 
But I think uh, let's, let's not forget on the larger scale of things, we must uh, continue to be in dialogue also uh, with China on many different uh, things uh, coming out of the pandemic, dealing with uh, the geopolitical situation, a very tense geopolitical situation that we are in, um, also dealing with the climate change that is still the biggest threat to humanity. So I think continued dialogue with China uh, remains very important. Eureka Bacchus, Luxembourg's finance minister. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And still to come, as we said, unprecedented scenes across China as protesters get angry over Xi Jinping's strict zero COVID policies. More from the region coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. China's leadership is doubling down on its commitment to a strict zero COVID policy as protests erupt in cities across the country. This was Beijing on Sunday night, where some protesters could be heard calling for Xi Jinping and the Communist Party to resign. Dozens of protesters gathered in Hong Kong on Monday night to show support for demonstrators in mainland China. CNN's Ivan Watson has more. The white sheets of paper that have become a symbol of the protests in mainland China have spread here to Hong Kong, where you can see small groups of demonstrators have gathered for a vigil for what they say are the victims of China's zero COVID policy. Now, we've heard these groups separating into groups of 12. And the reason is because in Hong Kong's own COVID regulations, groups of more than 12 gathering are banned right now. Now, this gathering is being closely watched by police who are urging people to move on, who are trying to create a space for this. Opposition protests, opposition political parties, independent news media have largely been crushed in this city in the last several years. So a gathering like this is very, very rare. And it gives you a sense of how potent the demonstrations are right now in mainland China and how they seem to be inspiring reactions in other territories. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. And joining me now is Michael Hearson. He is the head of China research at the investment strategy firm 22V Research. He was also previously the U.S. Treasury's chief representative in China. Michael, wonderful to have you on this day. I mean, I guess first, your just top line reaction to this type of protest. I mean, I suppose uh, more localized protesting isn't so uncommon, but this type of uh, protest in different cities across the country and toward the central government. I mean, how surprised are you to see this? Uh, I'm I'm pretty surprised. I mean, clearly the pressures have been building on zero COVID. We know that. But as you said, we haven't seen this scale of protest, not necessarily in terms of the numbers of individual protests, but the breadth across the country. That is very unusual in China. And I think it really does show the degree of exhaustion um, towards zero COVID policies at the local level. Well, I think what's also interesting is that you say that these protests are a very big deal. And here's what I thought was interesting. But China's leadership is likely to persist. That's right. I mean, the leadership is in a very difficult bind. Now, that is a bind largely of their own making. The bind really is that um, zero COVID policies are increasingly unsustainable in the face of Omicron and this local level exhaustion. But at the same time, China is not really ready to open up. We still don't have the vaccination campaign. 
where it should be. We don't have China with the ICU capacity that's probably necessary, necessary to safely handle a surge in cases. So I think at least for the time being, <clears throat> excuse me, China's leadership is going to be very reticent to significantly loose COVID policies despite these social pressures. I see. So how long would it take if the government suddenly did want to to start to think about a pivot? How long would it take to get the ICU capability, as you pointed out, to get the vaccination uh, rates needed to sort of safely reopen? How long would that process be? I think if we saw really decisive, swift action, um, they, the China would be in a much better shape uh, come the spring, let's say March or April. The problem is that local government resources are right now going into containment and testing. So it's very difficult for them to make this switch while China is trying to keep cases very low. But I think we are still really looking at spring at least before China is more comfortable and more prepared with a rise in cases. What's the likelihood at this point with these protests seemingly continuing to grow of a more chaotic pivot? One, explain what that means for our audience. And is that becoming more likely? I think it is becoming more likely. And the way that I would describe it is we are still nominally in zero COVID. And I think at least for the next month uh, until Chinese New Year, which is in, in late January, there's not going to be a very significant degree of loosening. But we're seeing fraying around the zero COVID policies. In other words, local governments are less able and maybe less willing to maintain, for example, very tough lockdowns. So we're seeing as kind of overall zero COVID framework, but one where cases continue to surge. That's chaotic because uh, what we'll move into is a transitional period where the Chinese population, which hasn't had to worry about catching COVID, uh, now does. And so we'll see households voluntarily restrict their own behavior, as we've seen in so many countries uh, as COVID has hit. So we'll have this combination of containment policies uh, imposed by the government, but also voluntary restrictions from workers. And that is a level of, um, you know, again, potential chaos that we haven't seen thus far in China's COVID response. And I think it's really quite important for people to understand that that could have a quite significant impact on the economy. And you say that that could also even be more devastating for the economy than zero COVID, which is hard to even wrap your head around. What options, Michael, we have to leave it here, but my last question, what options does she have at this point? Because I would imagine in pivoting, it's essentially admitting that zero COVID didn't work or was wrong. And I'm not sure that the government would be willing to do that. So what options does she have? I think again, through his own making, he doesn't have that many options. And that's why I think we're in for a very tight winter in terms of containment policies and a very rough outlook in the near term for China's economy. Michael Hearson, good to have you, head of China Research there at 22V Research. It's incredible insights. And stay with First Move. Cyber Monday is here, but is it paying off for retailers? I'm joined by the president of e-commerce giant Shopify with all the details. Welcome back to First Move. Thanksgiving weekend is over in the U.S. It is time for Wall Street to get back to work. U.S. stocks are up and running for the first full day of trading since Wednesday. And you can call it a post-Thanksgiving thud. Stocks are lower across the board. The Dow is falling for the first time in four sessions. And you can blame it on investor nervousness over the COVID lockdown situation in China and also the unprecedented anti-government protests there over the weekend. 
It's a busy week on tap for U.S. economic data. The new JOLTS job opening report is out on Wednesday. Now we got the all-important U.S. employment report on Friday. Also a key speech by Fed Chair Jerome Powell this week. Powell could hint that the next Fed rate hike in a few weeks won't be as large as the ones before, and that would come as a relief to investors. And the bargains never end as Black Friday morphs into Cyber Monday. But will retailers continue to rake in the profits? Well, according to Adobe Analytics, Black Friday saw an estimated $9.1 billion spent online by U.S. shoppers, which would be a record. Allison Kosick joins me now with the details. So, Allison, even coming into today, there was some pretty strong momentum for spending. I mean, you were out on Friday and you saw strong spending. So even heading into Monday, there was quite a bit of momentum there. So much momentum. Good to see you, Rahel. Yeah, and those Black Friday sales, those are just online. That's up 2.3% from the online spend on Black Friday that we saw last year. So despite the pressures of inflation, it looks like the the consumer is super resilient for the holiday shopping period. And then you even look at the online spend for Thanksgiving. $5.1 billion was spent as Americans were eating their turkey dinners. Okay, so today is Cyber Monday. We have been inundated by tons of emails of stores trying to sell, you know, sell everything from electronics to clothing to toys. And the expectation is pretty big. Uh, Adobe Analytics is expecting that more than $11 billion will be spent online just today. If that happens, that would be a jump of 5% from last year. So I think, Rahel, what we're seeing, at least for now, is that all those doomsayers about uh, the consumer retrenching, you know, we're just not seeing that. Instead, we're seeing consumers really being more budget conscious. They're using discounts to dictate uh, how they make their choices and and how they spend their money this holiday season, Rahel. That's an interesting point, Allison. And I wonder, uh, any insight into whether people are financing these purchases using credit cards or dipping into savings? Yeah, and we are seeing some kind of uh, downbeat trends as Americans are spending all of this money. We are seeing uh, Americans lean on savings more. They're going for credit cards more, which, of course, is a bit disturbing since rates are about 19 percent now to carry that debt on your credit card. That's actually at an all-time high. And, and with, with the Fed continuing to raise rates as expected, uh, credit card rates are expected to follow that trend, too, and rise even higher. We're also seeing about 30 percent of Americans are relying on something called buy now, pay later. That's kind of an installment plan and the way that people can buy uh, buy these goods without having to pay any kind of interest rate at the beginning. But the problem here is if you're going to do that, you've got to stick to a payment plan because if you miss those payments, you could get dinged with fees and that could really hurt your credit score. Also, one thing about buy now, pay later that people may not understand is that if you go to look, go to return an item, it gets a little kind of hairy because then you you have to still continue to make payments on an item that you've returned. So we're seeing Americans lean on all of these things to try to make those uh, make that magic continue during the holiday season. <laughs> Allison Kosick, good to have you. And we'll see how uh, it all stacks up as the yeah. day continues. Good to have you, Allison. Well, my next guest has his finger on the pulse of Cyber Monday. Harley Finkelstein is the president of leading e-commerce firm Shopify, which works with millions of businesses across 175 countries. And it had a very good Black Friday, announcing record sales of nearly $3.4 billion. And Harley Finkelstein, the president of Shopify, joins me now. Harley, uh, wonderful to have you. So walk me through some of the top lines, the trends that you saw. 
Yeah, absolutely. So just before I get into it, let's take a sort of a hyper real-time look at things. Anyone can check this out. If you go to datastories.shopfly.com, right now we're seeing about $1.2 million happen every single minute. Uh, $1.2 million of sales every minute, and about 11,000 orders happen every single minute. If you look across, if you go back to sort of the height of the pandemic in 2020, from Black Friday to Cyber Monday, we saw about five, um, uh, about $5.1 billion in sales happen throughout the four-day period. Well, this year, we crossed that $5.1 billion sales number Sunday evening. So not only are consumers certainly out there spending, but they're also being very intentional. They're buying from independent merchants and businesses, of which many of them are on Shopify. I see. Okay, so any categories that really stand out? Because that sort of gives you a sense, right, of, of where consumers are spending. If you see them start to spend more on categories that are necessities, well, then that sort of signals that maybe they are pulling back. If they're still spending on uh, discretionary categories like apparel, it signals maybe a stronger consumer. I mean, what did you see there? Yeah, a couple things. First of all, if you look at how consumers are purchasing, 75% of purchases we saw this year are happening on a mobile device, 25 on a desktop. So, you know, three quarters happening on a mobile device, that is really meaningful. In terms of categories, apparel and electronics are obviously big categories. We're seeing cosmetics. But another thing we're seeing is actually home furnishings are also up this year. And the reason is during the pandemic, I think people began to buy new homes or move to new locations. And so now they're outfitting their homes. But the key here is intentionality. Consumers really want to buy products from brands they really love. And so they're waiting for sales both on, on, on Black Friday, but also today on Cyber Monday for those deals from their favorite brands. And so there's real intentionality to get value. But it's really about quality, not necessarily about quantity, which is something we saw in the past. And I know you said that you've mentioned uh, you work with uh, Gymshark and you work with Aloe Yoga, two, two brands that I am very familiar with, Harley. My, two of uh, my favorite brands also. Amazing brands. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, any areas, however, on the opposite that you saw that were a bit depressed uh, geographically or uh, even areas of shopping where you, you are starting to see a slowdown? Well, remember, most of the stores on Shopify, like Aloe Yoga or Gymshark or Bombus or, you know, James Purse, my favorite T-shirts, these companies have these really great loyal customer bases. And I think brands and, and, and businesses that have a real relationship, a direct relationship with their consumer, they've really done well. I think it's more the department stores that, that obviously, um, where the connection is not, not direct, where they're selling through an intermediary, that's where there may be some issues. But so far on Shopify, it's been quite good. The other thing, actually, that's mm. important to know is 15% of all the sales we saw across across all of Shopify were actually cross-border. So we're seeing incredible brands from all over the world sell to consumers in other parts of the world. And it feels like this idea of you know, commerce and retail being default global is really happening this year. And we're fortunate that millions of those stores are powered by, by Shopify. Harley, how do you explain to people who, who see this report and see that consumers are still shopping around the world, but know that inflation around the world is also elevated, interest rates continue to rise around the world? I mean, you know, how do you explain both of those things? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think what's happening this particular holiday season is the, the holiday season is less frantic. There's less supply mm. chain issues. There's more inventory on the shelves. There was more anticipation and thoughtfulness by retailers to make sure they had sufficient inventory given, given the, the consumer demand. So it does feel like it's more robust, but also a bit more calm this year than, than in the past. Last year, especially, was really, really frantic. But in terms of the inflationary issues, one of the things that people miss is that the business model around direct-to-consumer means there's less intermediaries in the commerce stack, which means that they're able to weather the storm better than retailers who maybe are reselling somebody else's item and have razor sharp margins. And so actually, in many ways, I think direct to consumer is proving to be the best business model when it comes to retail now. And I think it'll be steady state going forward. 
It's a fair point. Uh, Harley, before I let you go, I do have to ask Shopify, of course, being a tech player. I mean, how are you as a company preparing for the idea uh, that there could be an economic downturn? I mean, you're already seeing all sorts of tech players prepare for that. I mean, what are you doing as a company to prepare for what might be on the other side? Yeah, look, the entire mission of Shopify is to level the playing field, to make it really easy to not only start a business, but to scale a business. And you, when you look at companies like Allbirds, for example, or Figs, for example, they started their mom's kitchen table and are now global powerhouses, vertical leaders. That's really what we, what, why we show up at work every day. And so what we're trying to do is find ways to help merchants and, and help businesses, you know, whether it's payments or it's fulfillment or it's shipping or it's capital. We've given out more than $4 billion of capital to small businesses to help them not only by inventory and advertising, but also insurance they continue to run their businesses. And so we're really focused now on further leveling the playing field. But also, one of the things we notice about these sort of economic downturns, uh, and we saw this back in 2008 as well, is this is when people really look to supplement their income, to take other jobs. And Shopify is a great place to commercialize a hobby or to make a little bit of extra money on the side. And that side hustle may actually become a very large business at some point. So we've mm-hmm. typically done quite well, but this is the time where we're really focused on how do we help merchants and small businesses get through this period. And uh, that, that's our mission. I see. Harley Finkelstein, great to have you today, president of Shopify. Welcome back. South Korea has the world's 10th largest economy, but it's facing a big problem. Where to find workers in a country with the lowest birth rate in the world? Paula Hancox reports. Lee Se-yun empties a box of toys onto the living room floor for her boys, hoping to catch a few moments for herself. She used to work in a brokerage firm before launching her own startup, She's not worked in seven years and feels South Korean society no longer appreciates her. We need to recognize that parenting is a new career, she says. The current social climate is that parenting is the beginning of a career break. Lee says her husband wants to help more, but the business culture here means the job does not end when the office closes. A patriarchal society that is slow to evolve still largely sees the mother staying home to care for the children and the father going out to work contributing to the lowest birth rate of any country in the world. President Yun Sok Yeol visited a nursery recently, pledging new parental benefits and the creation of a new committee to come up with fresh ideas. At a baby fair outside Seoul, we met expectant parents who were less than enthused. Kim Min Jong is expecting her second child in November. She hasn't worked since her first child, as she says help or good childcare is too expensive. There is no change in how much money we're getting. They've changed the names and merch allowances. But for parents like us, there are no more benefits. Having a baby is very much expected for married couples in South Korea. And single mothers are treated differently. We still have a very kind of puritanical approach to single mothers. Uh, It's as if they have done something wrong by becoming pregnant out of Redlock. Add to that the astronomical cost of housing, here in Seoul in particular, the cost of education and growing economic concern among the youth, and you have the perfect storm. What it means for South Korea and its ageing population is a looming shortage of workers to pay into the pension system. There's also a growing number of women who have no interest in getting married or having babies for personal or societal reasons. Uh, Lee Jin-sung has written books about wanting to live alone. 
In Korea, there is a joke like an urban legend. If you're not dating by the time you're 25, you'll turn into a crane, meaning if you're single, you become non-human. Korean women have come to realize that marriage imposes too much work on them. Marriage, childbirth and childcare require too much sacrifice on women. Lee says it's an issue the government does not understand, a problem that will not get better simply by throwing money at it. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And Houston, we have a new record. NASA's Orion spacecraft has just flown farther than any other vehicle designed to carry humans in space. It's part of the Artemis One mission to test the limits of space exploration. Orion flew almost a quarter of a million miles from Earth, or more than 400,000 kilometers. That breaks the record set by Apollo 13 more than 50 years ago. CNN's Kristen Fisher joins me now with all the details. So, Kristen, walk me through just how significant this development was. Well, it's been a long time coming, Rachel. I mean, NASA has not sent a spacecraft designed to carry humans this far into space since the 1960s and 70s with the Apollo program. Uh, this Orion capsule is what launched uh, on top of the Artemis or SLS rocket uh, back at the end of November, mid-November. Um, and it's been traveling through space uh, on day 11 of its mission, which was on Saturday. It broke that distance record, beating uh, the Apollo 13 spacecraft. That spacecraft went about uh, 248,000 miles away from Earth. Artemis and the Orion capsule now going about 270,000 miles away from Earth. And, you know, uh, it's interesting, this sort of uh, linkage between these two missions, Apollo 13 and Artemis 1. Apollo 13, Rachel, of course, was that uh, almost disastrous uh, mission back in 1970 where those three astronauts almost died on board after um, an oxygen tank essentially uh, exploded in the service module. Uh, and it was up to an engineer and several engineers, but one in particular, a man by the name of Arturo Campos, who really helped NASA help figure out, you know, how to get these astronauts back safely to Earth. And now there is a mannequin, Rachel, inside um, the Artemis capsule, the Orion capsule that just broke this distance record, is kind of a tribute to that engineer uh, for helping get those astronauts back safely. So uh, the, the whole goal of this, of course, is to someday put astronauts inside the Orion capsule, this distance record, um, really proving that this capsule uh, can, can go the extra mile, is safe to carry astronauts, and we should find out um, if indeed astronauts will be on board for Artemis II uh, when it lands back in the uh, Pacific Ocean on December 11th, Rachel. <laughs> okay. Kristen Fisher, good to have you. Thank you. Thanks. And finally, call it the green light for gaslight. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary team is out with its 2022 word of the year. And gaslighting has top honors. And no, we are not gaslighting you. So what is gaslighting, you ask? Well, according to Webster, it is, quote, the psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that causes someone to question the validity of their own thoughts. So does gaslight seem right as the word of the year or not quite? We'll let you ponder that question tonight. But here's what I can weigh in on. If you have to ask what gaslighting is, you, my friend, have never been gaslit. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.